Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Hi, this is Dr. Lodi, and I am live here from the North American Menopause Society at the conference with Drs. Men and Dr. Rahman. And we are here today to go over all the latest things and uh, treatments and uh, research on menopause and what you can do about it. So this podcast is going to be everything you need to know about menopause, menopause and beyond. Yeah. yeah, from the menopause society. That's right. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you are having any medical issues, please speak with your healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. Right. Yeah, we're very excited to be here at the Menopause Society Conferences in Philadelphia. And um, to, their theme has been sort of what they want to call precision care. So that really means individualizing your care for menopause. So, um, you know, it's really a matter about, you know, making the decisions with whoever's treating you, whatever clinician's treating you, you have to make a shared decision, but it's really based on your history, your genetics, uh, your environmental factors, all of that combined. And so this has been a great, um, you know, they're, they're presenting great research, uh, you know, they're reinforcing topics that we already know, but, you know, like pushing home some, some topics for people that are maybe new to menopause. It's been mm. really great. It's been yeah. amazing. And today was um, the headline um, speaker was Sue Dominus from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. So if any listeners out there have not read the article, Women Have Been Misled on Menopause, it was the New York Times Magazine cover story a few months ago mm -hmm. and was a viral article. And for the first time in ever, women felt heard and represented that this menopause major life transition is meaningful, it's important, it has serious impacts on women's health, and women deserve to have access to knowledge and education and options. And options. Right. Yeah, and Sue right. Dominic said- there are a lot of options. Yeah, yes. and she was like, she said, she's like, I'm not here to proselytize hormones, although let's face it, women were misled on- on the benefits and the risks, and that for the vast majority of women, mm -hmm. hormone therapy is appropriate, safe, and the 
benefits outweigh the risks, but it's not their only option, of course, but at least the conversation's been started. Right, right absolutely. And, and so, and what we also know is that the best time to go on hormones is within 10 years of undergoing menopause, so the menopausal transition, which is where you don't have a period for a whole year, and if you're less than the age of 60. So yeah. that's the really or, the ideal time. Right, or. Yeah, and so I always wanted, I just jump in to put that out, is because you, you always have women who say, well, my last you know, I'm 62, but my last period was at 57. So really the 10 win- ten year window goes to like mm. 67 for her. Yeah. Right. So sometimes yeah. that 60 number gets yes. people scared and miss, you know, right. it was just 60 because the average age of menopause is around 50, 51. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And remember, it's shared decision making, right? So if you tell a patient, like I have many patients who come to me and they're like 60 something and yeah. they're like, well, I mean, I exercise every day. I have a perfect cardiovascular risk profile. I have, I'm up to date on my mammograms. I've been screened for colon. I mean, they're in great health and they want to continue their hormones, you know, indefinitely, you know, it's a year to year thing. Obviously we always look at, but I mean, you have to look at the patient as an individual. And I think that was one of the big driving home points. Um, remember re- menopause is a retrospective diagnosis and uh, perimenopause is a clinical diagnosis. So a lot of these things, you know, we come to and, um, you know, kind of after the fact, but when you're going through it, there's help for you. And I think one of the um, uh, big messages was also, you know, like, the symptoms can really vary. You know, it's like it can, it's not only just about hot flashes. It's not only just about, you know, night sweats. There's so many things that women go through. Where, I always say wherever you have estrogen receptors in your body, you can have something from menopause. So it's dry <laughs> eyes, it's joint pain, it's brain uh, fog, brain fog. Yeah. cognitive Irregular distress. Irregular periods. Yeah. And what, I, do you, what I think cognitive distress is one of the biggest reasons yeah. people come I mean, in. that's what, and it was actually one of the points that Sudamis made today is that the, um, that what one thing that she hopes is that other specialists, not just OBGYNs, but psychiatrists, rheumatologists, yes. you know, other specialists, orthopedic surgeons, recognize that when you've got a woman who comes in at midlife and they've got symptoms of, say, joint pain or new mood disorder, you have to think about what is happening in her life and is she having a major hormonal transition? Yes, she is. And you as a specialist need to know how your specialty is affected by the menopause transition. Instead of maybe scaring her that she has a brain tumor, talk to her about that maybe her brain fog and from the hormone and that maybe estrogen therapy would be appropriate for her instead of giving her a million dollar workup for a zebra when you should be looking at the horse. The horse <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good point that you bring up is that, you know, it's not just one specialty that should be looking yeah. at menopause, but because menopause encompasses everything, right? Everything in our body affects really all of our organ systems that yes. all physicians should at least be a little bit literate yeah. on what's going on sure. and not scare women and not say that they can't have estrogen or hormone therapy or that, you know, they're going to develop blood clots and breast cancer and all that stuff. I think that it's really important for them to go over their risks right. with their and clinicians. And I think, you know, the, most of the fear is, you know, most, most of you who are listening probably have some idea, but just in case you don't, you know, one of the biggest um, studies that ever came out on women in general was the Women's Health Initiative. I call it the Y2K of women's health <laughs> yeah. because it happened around 2001. Yes. You know, 20 years have gone by and some people are still practicing like it was 20 years ago. But, you know, the big the, the big sensationalization came out through the media and through our, our government funding and all this stuff that, hey, you know what? 
uh, hormone therapy causes breast cancer. And so everyone freaked out. And this is what the narrative that some people still have in their head. So I was glad that Sue kind of like, you know, uh, in her story kind of discussed that a lot was the Women's Health Initiative and why that was such a big an amazing study and all the sort of post-hack analysis have really been in favor of hormone therapy, but that this was really the cause of so many people's fear of hormones. And not only that, it was, uh, you know, it caused clinicians to fear hormones. And so people just thought, oh, well, no one should be on hormones. So I'm not even going to look at it anymore, which is not true. And gyno girl, <laughs> let me have you tell the audience in the arm of the women's health initiative, in the arm where women only took estrogen, what were the results in the 20-year follow-up? Yeah, that actually, there was a decrease in breast cancer, and the survivorship actually was, for the patients that did get diagnosed with breast cancer, the survivorship was better for those that were on in that study as well. So it was like one of these things where it was like, actually, your risk will go down with the CE, with conjugated equine estrogen. Yeah. Right. Which was what was studied. And so the headline was instead that hormone therapy causes breast cancer, which the study actually did not show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and somehow the media missed the big headline that there was a up to 30% decrease, decrease risk in getting breast cancer. And if you happened to get breast cancer while taking the hormone therapy, your prognosis and survival was better. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a lot of talk today about, well, why did the arm that showed estrogen and a progestin, a very tiny increased risk, but only in older women and only after a number of years, and the risk was barely statistically yes. significant. And we think maybe, we don't know, had to do with the synthetic progestin. So we should talk to them about what do people tend to use these days. But also, right. don't you think that... Uh, I think it was, um, was it Dr. Abrams who looked at what, when, when they talk about removing the control trial, right? The yes. people that were in the control, yes. um, they were actually people that had been on uh, estrogen. And so they actually, if you remove that, they did not have an increased risk. And there's actually a, a paper that is hoped to be published this fall to show that actually the entire message of the WHI was completely right. wrong. Right. And that even in the arm of the trial with estrogen and a progestin, that even in that arm, there was not an increased risk. Right. So it's really, it was fake news, sadly. Fake, fake news. Mm, and and yeah. guess what? You know what increases your risk the same way that this does? It's five to seven drinks of alcohol a week. Right. So, I mean, you know, you have to think about what other risks do you have, you know, potentially. Like, you have to look at the whole person, right? And so that's one of the big things that we want to reiterate, that your clinician should be looking at you as a whole. What are What things are you consuming? What... Are you, what, what's your diet? Are you plant-based? Are you uh, pure vegan? Are you not? Or what, what is going on in your whole system? And how can we sort of, um, you know, uh, find a plan of therapy that's best for you? Right. And I think that if you're having a hard time finding a physician that is able to take care of you during the menopause stage in your life, then you can go on the North American Menopause Society and they change their name to the Menopause Society and they have a list of practitioners that are their members that you can go and find somebody in your neck of the woods that can help you through this menopause transition because I think it's so helpful. Um, one of the things that I think that we don't get to talk about very often, which is super important, is what menopause does to your sexual health, right? And mm -hmm. how that's affected. And something that we know helps 
a lot is vaginal estrogen with the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, right? That's when we have the vaginal dryness, the increased risk of urinary tract infections and the irritation and the itching and all of that. So we know that the vaginal estrogen can help. And I think when, you know, I think women just think of it as simply vaginal dryness. Um, and that's, that's a misnomer. It's not true. And it's also urinary health, but also kind of, there's not, people don't talk about this as much in the studies or the data, but this idea of sexual functioning and arousal and feeling sensitivity Mm -hmm. in order for you to have a sexual response, you need to have blood flow and healthy tissue. Um, The nerve endings need to be healthy there and having vaginal hormones, vaginal estrogen or vaginal DHEA and FDA approved there's a version of that called intrarosa, um, can make a huge difference. So it's not right. just, if women say, yeah, well, my vagina's not really dry. It's a lot more than that. Yeah, it's urgency, urinary urgency, it's urinary frequency, your vulva and vagina change in look, the architecture of it looks mm. different, the labia regress, they shrink down, the clitoris shrinks. Yes. Because <laughs> guess what? You're also losing 50% of your testosterone in menopause. Your ovaries, when they retire, stop making uh, testosterone. So you have that loss of testosterone. I mean, your adrenal glands still make it, but for women, you lose, you lost half your testosterone in menopause. And so what is really important is the vulva, the clitoris, the vestibule, which is the opening of the vagina, where that's where people have the most pain on penetration. That has androgen receptors and estrogen receptors, as does the vagina. Now, new research is showing there's testosterone receptors in the vagina. So that's why DHEA some people think in this form may even be superior because it, it in, in its way it works, it gets into the cells, it converts into estrogen and testosterone. Mm-hmm. And because some of it seeps out into the vestibule, the opening, it actually helps with vestibular pain or pain on penetration. So I think that, you know, you, some people, you know, there's some authorities that do believe and some studies that do demonstrate that, that vestibular um, changes occur with DHEA as well. I mean, so what you're looking at is not just you know, what's happening with estrogen. And guess what? When you lose 50% of your testosterone, what else might happen? You might lose your desire. Like you yeah, might just, absolutely. and if, it's fine if you lose your desire and you know, you're a couple and you're fine and we're both it doesn't not bother having sex, you. Yeah, but right. Hey, I'm frustrated. I want to have more sex. Then you know what? You should look into what we call hypoactive sexual desire disorder and whether or not testosterone therapy might be for you. Right. And there's in other the medications. Form. In the correct form. Yes. Right. FDA. Not in pellets. Not no in right. Right. We don't believe in testosterone pellets. <laughs> no, we want to make sure. Injectables. Before, no before we move on to testosterone, I just, one common thing women will say like, well, uh, what about a vaginal moisturizer? It makes me feel better and I don't feel as dry. And I say, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. But please understand that mm-hmm. it doesn't architecturally change anything. It's not helping your clitoris. It's not helping your bladder. It's not helping your urethra. It's not going to help sexual response. It's going to help with dryness. And I think it's okay to use it alone if that's that's fine. But understand it's not replacing vaginal estrogen, but it can complement it. Yeah. I tell patients a trifecta of a good moisturizer, some like sort of vaginal hormone, acid, right? hormone of yeah. whatever, and then a lubricant when you have sex to decrease friction. But a lube, a lube during sex is not a vaginal moisturizer. Right. right. And neither are vaginal estrogen. Right. And I just want to make the point of vaginal estrogen as such, um, a, you know, a low risk thing to do for patients. Yes. But also, I mean, if you think about, and I tell my patients who are going through menopause, I'm like, is, is your mom still alive? And they'll say, yeah, like, is she on vaginal estrogen? And they'll say no. And I'm like, well, does she get urinary tract infections? Mm-hmm. If they 
guess what? Guess what happens to older women when they get urinary tract infections? They get urosepsis, they end up in the ICU, and they can die. So, in fact, I tell patients that vaginal estrogen can be life-saving. Like, it can literally save Absolutely. an 80-year-old patient's life or 70-year-old or whoever, like anyone right. that's compromised. Right. So, I just, you know, I think it's that one of the most more... common reasons for an older woman to go to the ER yes. is from having a, a fever, infection. low back pain, or UTI. Yeah. And all of us are OBGYN trained and all of us in our residency saw, because we, we came up of the age where no one was talking about this. We saw older women coming to the hospital from nursing homes with horrible vulvar ulcers, yes. horribly oh. thin, dry. They were really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. They were sitting in diapers yep. and literally suffering yes. when not all of it, but much of it could have been prevented with right. something simple like vaginal estrogen, 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 right? Yeah. And it's very sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, really and sad. you know, the FDA doesn't help by putting a big black box warning on vaginal estrogen. So but, explain, tell everybody, because I think yeah. that's super important yeah, for women so to understand. Yeah, because that's what sometimes patients, when they get their vaginal estrogen, they're like, Dr. Ramon, it says I might get cancer or a blood clot or yeah. whatever. Um, and so, you know, there's different versions. There's vaginal estrogen, which is locally absorbed, and there's systemic estrogen, which is systemically absorbed. It increases your blood levels of estrogen. And so while you use vaginal estrogen, you know, maybe in the first two weeks, if you're using it every day, you might get a little bump and then it goes down over time because you have to use it as Rachel Rubin says, till death do you part. Like you have to use <laughs> when it. When you stop it, it, it doesn't it work working, anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think that, you know, that's an important thing is that it doesn't really, it doesn't increase your systemic levels. And so you, you don't have the same risk as when you take it to prevent hot flashes or to help your cardiac health or to help your bone health. It's not the same version. So definitely there are patients who cannot be on hormones at all, but the majority of women can actually, or I should say vaginal, vagina owners can actually be on vaginal estrogen. Even um, breast cancer even survivors. Breast cancer survivor. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. I'm a long-term breast cancer survivor, and it shocks me how many breast cancer survivors out there just have no knowledge of this, and their doctors aren't telling them. And it's really sad because we have, I think they said at our breast symposium that we did, I think that there's we're having like up to 300,000 new survivors added to the population every year. Mm -hmm. So that is just a huge population of women out there yeah. who yeah. may have the incorrect notion that they need to suffer with genital urinary syndrome changes in menopause mm -hmm. when they can effectively be treated. We have lots of different vaginal estrogen options, different doses, different versions, but they're all local hormones and right. like you said, not systemic and you right. can take it. Right. Um, and if your oncologist or your GON says no, you have to ask them Where's, Why, the where's the data and them telling no because yeah. the guidelines are actually the opposite of that. They right. can. They can. Right. And, uh, you know, as a, as a gynae, I do actually talk to the oncologists of yes. the patients. You know, you have to kind of run it by them, especially a new survivor. Uh, you know, patients are very anxious. Yes. I like, you know what, I'll, I'll confirm with your oncologist if you'd like. And they were like, okay, sure. So then, you know, and most oncologists nowadays, I think, are getting, you know, more and more on board with it. Right. I think, yeah. I mean, their own professional study guidelines tell them that they should be doing it. Yeah. In my practice, I don't call the oncologist. I just tell them, here's the science, here's the facts, and yeah. I convince them to do it. Um, but rarely do you see pushback. But right. sometimes you still do it, and yeah. that's our job as doctors, just pick up the phone and, cool. and, and, 
and talk and to again, each other. Talk to each other. Precision medicine, they talk about individualized. Care yes. Individual. Yes, yeah. totally. I think also what we talked about here and a few things that they mentioned was about the vasomotor symptoms, right? So we talked mm -hmm. about the gender urinary syndrome of menopause and a lot of research has also gone into vasomotor symptoms. So those are, you know, the hot flashes, the night sweats, the mood swings, all of those things that sleep, women, yeah, <laughs> sleep disturbances that women can suffer through um, as they're making, as they're going through the transition through menopause. And so some of the treatments are um, hormonal, we know that, estrogen therapy. And there is a treatment that uh, is non-hormonal, right? That Vioza. Vioza, right? And that we know that you have to do a lot. You have to do your due diligence as a physician and check home and check enzymes and liver enzymes and things like that. But there are options for women that don't want to go on hormones um, that are suffering from hot flashes and night sweats and mood swings. Right. But I think the m really important message is that the first line gold standard treatment is FDA approved hormone, hormone. therapy. Yeah. And the Menopause Society just read released their 2023 non-hormonal practice statement, reiterating that, but saying, if you have a true contraindication, contraindication, or if, yes, you've chosen not to take the hormones, but I wanted to say an asterisk here, many women say they choose not to take the hormone, but no one's actually given them the information of why right. the hormonal approach is far better for the vast majority of women. The non-hormonal options will treat your vasomotor symptoms and maybe help you sleep and all of that, but it's not going to protect your bones or your heart yeah. or your brain or your right. skin or your sexual health. But we do have options for people who absolutely can't. And Vioza is one of them, brand name new. But there's also um, the Menopause Society has this lovely yeah. position statement that outlines a bunch of other medications. And so. they talk about something which um, they said was level one research, right, Was which was cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, so that yes. also helps, which I was really surprised, but it's um, – I think it's really interesting that's just yeah. talking about changing your thoughts and your feelings and that leads to different actions and um, you can go and try to seek a provider usually a psychologist or a therapist that focuses on cognitive behavioral therapy yes. would be yeah. somebody that would be an option for somebody that doesn't want to go on hormones but wants something for their vasomotor symptoms and that research has shown that it's been helpful and not only helpful for that, but I think at the last Menopause Society meeting, or maybe at Ishwish, great presentation on how CBT can be very, very helpful for desire and yeah. sexual desire. Sure. Oh, so yeah. that's super powerful too. So that's a great combination right. there. Yes, yeah. So there's tons of research. There's been research done on group therapy as well as individualized therapy on looking at women and um, seeing that in six months and then in nine months, how cognitive behavioral therapy, when we increase our mindfulness and that's just, you know, being present in the moment without judgment, really can increase arousal and desire in women specifically and how that really, really helps in a relationship. So I think mindfulness helps in lots of different ways and in coaching, we use that a lot. But yeah, CBT, absolutely. There's lots of data and research that shows that that helps in arousal and desire. And now we know about vasomotor symptoms. Yeah, so, so it's a nice adjunct. And I think that just goes to show when you're talking about females who suffer from sexual dysfunction, whether or not it's pain, arousal, orgasm, or desire, you really have to, and this is a different topic for a different day, but really a biopsychosocial approach, oh, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you have to look at the biology, yes. like are there hormones, are there neurotransmitters, yeah. what's going on? Is there pain? But of course you have to look at, you know, do they have anxiety, depression, whatever, but also, you know, the whole thing, like 
relationship status, all that stuff. Maybe so you just need a new partner sometimes. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what I tell patients. I'm like, I can give you some testosterone, but I can't change your partner. I can't fix so your partner. It's, uh, something that and works. when you talk about the biopsychosocial model, you know, oftentimes we forget as clinicians that medications often affect libido and desire as right. well, right? We know that birth control can affect that. We know that um, hypertensive meds can affect that. Diabetes can affect it. Right. A lot of things um, are able to affect desire and depression. arousal. And depression medication. Yeah, and depression medication, absolutely. Big time, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So depression and anxiety also affect your desire and your arousal. So really important stuff over there. And I want to just add for all those ladies out there having their ovaries removed early um, prior to the natural age of menopause, that, that um, and this is standard, you know, standard of care is that if you have premature menopause for any reason, but let's particularly like highlight the women who have surgical removal of their ovaries for benign reasons, for non whatever, non-cancerous reasons, those women require true replacement doses right. of their hormones and not just what we call MHT, menopausal hormone therapy. In those cases, it's true replacement. Right. It's the same mm -hmm. idea as if we took your thyroid out, we'd replace it with thyroid hormone. If we took you know, ovaries. took your ovaries out, we're removing, like you said, 50% of the source of your testosterone and your only real main source of your estrogen. Right. So up until at least the natural age of menopause, you must have your hormone therapy replaced. And at probably slightly higher levels, or actually we know standard care is at higher levels than what a menopausal hormone right. therapy regimen would look like for someone who was treating half flashes and wanting to just have prevention of bone loss um, and genitourinary right. treatment. And on that same vein, um, are those women that experience premature ovarian insufficiency, right? When yes. they have uh, premature ovarian um, loss, really basically your ovaries are not working, you're less than the age of 40. It's kind of the same idea which same uh, Dr. Men said is you want to get that hormonal uh, replacement up until the natural age of menopause. Which yeah. is 51 -ish. Yeah. And the same risks-benefit analysis do not apply to the woman who is younger mm -hmm. as to the woman who is older. Um, and so, you know, one in eight women in this country lose their ovaries prior to the natural age of menopause for benign reasons. Mm -hmm. Think about that number. Yeah. One in eight. And in a recent publication, it showed that, like, less than 30% of them are counseled on actually having hormone therapy. And what does that do? It increases their risk of depression, anxiety, heart, heart attacks, disease, yeah. heart disease. Mm -hmm. The number one killer, dementia, the number one killer of women is heart, heart disease. disease. So we're taking their ovaries out for maybe some good reasons, but we have to address the elephant in the room that we're raising their risks of all these other things without, Absolutely. if we don't replace them. Absolutely. Yeah, really important. Um, what were some of your other takeaways? Um, yeah, I think, what else did they talk about? Oh, some additional, like various types of treatments that are done. Um, I know. think very important from the very first, the session of the breast is that um, most women don't know their breast density. Um, but now there's a push and there's actually a law now that radiologists and uh, radiology centers have to inform you of how dense your breasts are. Increased breast density is associated with an increased breast cancer risk, not only because it's harder to find the cancers, but because there's actually a biologically 
makes them at a higher risk. There's more glandular tissue. Um, and so that sounds scary because so many women are going to be yeah. told they have dense breasts. But the good news is, is one, it doesn't preclude you from having hormone therapy. It's not a contraindication. But what you need to do is ask your doctor for enhanced screening with a breast MRI. So yeah. if you've got dense breasts and you have a increased risk of breast cancer for any other factors, you your insurance should pay for you to have breast screening MRIs as part of your precision medicine yes. surveillance. And you have to know your own risk for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And the other big point was that one in four women meet the criteria for genetic testing for, you know, to, for gene mutations that increase breast cancer risk, but, you know, less than 10% of those one in four women are yeah. actually getting referred for testing. Yeah. So it's a huge missed opportunity right. to get that knowledge. Yeah, we mm. do the testing in my office uh, through a, a lab called Myriad Genetics, who I think were the ones that discovered the BRCA1 and 2. They were, but, yeah. But um, 30, I think it's like 28 or 30 genes they screen for. So Not just BRCA, yeah. yeah. So there's all these, and then Ashkenazi Jewish patients who of that inheritance usually get screened as well because I think their risk is like yeah it's higher. Their risk is one in forty, four. and there's actually many experts who say that really there should be universal screening of Ashkenazi Jewish women, right? Um, because one in forty risk, right? Um, right. And so what you have to do, that, and then and then at least I know through their genetic lab they'll actually do the calculation and they'll tell you hey that your patient's lifetime risk is 23% or 24%. And anyone with a greater than 20% yeah. lifetime risk of breast cancer needs to have a breast um, a mammogram and MRI. So I just do every six months, one will get an MRI, one will get a, um, a mammogram. And that will be uh, you know, enhanced surveillance for them. Uh, along with an annual clinical breast exam. So those are the kind of things that, uh, you know, again, makes for, you know, pre precision medical. And the other point they made is that by age 30, all women should have an assessment of their breast cancer risk. It doesn't mean they should have breast uh, imaging. But at th by 30, you should have had a conversation with your doctor about what is your risk for breast cancer? And so that you know, one, should I get genetic testing? When I'm of age, should I get my breast cancer screening? And maybe, maybe I do have a higher risk, yeah, so I'll get my screening thing. sooner, mm -hmm. right? And the other elephant that no one talks about is like, what are the preventative things we can do to prevent risks, health risks, prevent breast cancer, prevent cardiovascular disease, prevent yeah. bone loss? The last topic that we were, we jumped out of to do this podcast was on bone health. And the right. guy said, um, the the general guidelines are let's do a bone density at age 65, but by 65, you're going to find down. there's, I forget the number, but it's a huge percentage that you're going to find osteoporosis on those women. Yeah. And he says, look to your right and left. One in three of you will get an osteoporotic fracture in your lifetime. One in three. Right. But if we, he says, if we screen women earlier, like around the time, like 50, when they mm -hmm. go through menopause, you'd be able to pick up on the low density before you got to the, the right. osteoporosis. Right, the osteopenia, and then that could be treated before you go to osteoporosis. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so much to talk about. Yeah, that, there yeah. is, there and is I think tons. we're ready for our next session. Now. We yes. are, so <laughs> we, well, run. That we have is, more to learn. That's right, yeah. well, that is it for today. So thank you so much to everyone for tuning in, and thank you to Dr. Men and Dr. Rahman and until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.